0: So when I was about 10, I attended a friend's church for a while. They're part of the, uh, come out of the Quaker tradition. And so I only really remember, well, I I guess I have three vivid memories. I have one vivid memory of a project we did in Sunday school for some reason. But the other one thing I remember was it was in a funeral home. And so there were doors locked, but we could see through the windows there were coffins in there. So that was a little odd. And the other thing I remember is that we did this extended time of silence. And if any of you have ever been part of the Friends or Quaker tradition or experienced that, you know that's a big part of their tradition. And as a 10-year-old, um, I don't really know how long it was, but it felt like about a half hour. <laughs> and uh, I just remember that it was um, all the kids were in church, right? Because they didn't have separate Sunday school during the, the time at all. Um, and now I look back and go, that must have been so hard for my mom. <laughs> But I also remember, it's interesting as a 10-year-old, I just remember it being such an odd thing in our society, even then, to have times of silence when nobody was saying anything or doing anything. Such a powerful part of some of the spiritual traditions in the church is this idea that when we're not speaking, we might actually be most open to what the Spirit wants to say to us. And I find it odd that I find myself in a job where my job is to speak every Sunday with the hope that as you are all sitting and listening, that the Spirit will speak to you. Which again, it's just, it's not, I was going to say it's a real odd thing, but you know what, there is a resurgence in sort of the spoken communication if you think about like the TED Talks and things like that. It's becoming more common, but anyway, that's what we're about this morning. I get to speak and I'll read you scriptures And your job is to find that place of silence where the Spirit may um, move you. And as I do this, I find oftentimes God surprises me as well. So let's pray. Father, we ask that as we enter a time of reading your word and meditating upon it, that it would be your voice we hear and yours alone. We thank you for the gift of this time and space, and we offer it to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Romans 9.30-10.13 to 10, is our text this morning. That we're going to be reading. So if you have a Bible close by, I invite you to go ahead and grab that and follow along. We've been working our way through Romans. We took a break last week for Easter. We're going to be continuing for a little while. Before we jump into this text today, um, I have to say something I said at the beginning of this series, which is we do need to understand that the context that this letter was written into. So there's a, <clears throat> a church in Rome that Paul has not visited, and he's writing to them. And Rome, of course, is a major metropolis of the ancient world. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and there's, uh, in this church, there's a mixing, more than probably many of the other churches, of those who were long-time practicing Jews and ethnic Jews, many of them, and those who came out of a completely... We would say pagan culture because there were a lot of worship of many different gods and pagan practices into the christian church the greeks or the gentiles and this church unlike many others is mixed and what we think we know from the history is that what happened was um, there was a time when there was an uprising we think over the name of christ because it's in the in the records it says christus or christus is like one letter misspelling of the name of, of christ in greek that there was some kind of rioting in the city among the Jews over this issue, which wouldn't be a surprise when you read the New Testament of how that happened. And so the emperor said, all Jews are banned from Rome, and kicks them out. So during that time, we believe that the Gentile church then, who were were, um, new Christians, many of them, continued to grow and flourish. And then when the Jews were allowed back into Rome, you now have even more tensions than were previously. Because for a long time, Christianity was thought of simply as long time. In the early church, for a long time, for many decades, Christianity was thought of merely as an extension of the Jewish religion, or a a sort of splitting off of the Jewish religion. So the Jewish-Gentile issue is big in Romans. And I know that it may not be such a big deal for us, but there actually is a lot that we can learn as we study it. So we've skipped over some of the, the talk that Paul's been doing on this issue. If you want to go back and read in chapter 9 especially, you'll see that he spends a long time talking about this issue. Um, and he will go on talking about it some more. We're jumping into the middle of this conversation in chapter 9, verse 30, as we do this. What then are we to say? Gentiles who did not strive for righteousness have attained it. That is, righteousness through faith. But Israel, who did strive for righteousness, that is based on the law, did not succeed in fulfilling the law. Why not? Because they did not strive for it on the basis of faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, See, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make people stumble, a rock that will make them fall, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I can testify that they have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened. Paul's talking now about Israel, his family that he comes out of. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes concerning the righteousness that comes from the law, that the person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith says... Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart, and so is justified. And one confesses with the mouth, and so is saved. The scripture says, No one who believes in him will be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we have in this particular issue in the church the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles and the wrestling of how they incorporate many of the Jewish practices and the obedience to the law and all of that with what Jesus has done. And as the church wrestles with this, we find Paul writing and saying something very similar to what Jesus Jesus often said. When Jesus said things like, the first will be last, and the last will be first. And when he talked to the religious rulers of his time, and said that they really were the worst of, of them all, and that the, the people who were coming to him, who were the sinners, were really the ones who got it. And that's what made people very upset. Paul says something very similar. He's saying the insiders, the insiders have become the outsiders. The outsiders have become the insiders. That's where we started In the very beginning. Because Paul said that those who strived for righteousness that is based on the law, they they did not succeed in finding it, fulfilling it. That's back in verse 31. But those who didn't look for it, they ended up finding righteousness through faith. So it's it's a classic reversal. It's what we see over and over in Scripture. So... A very um, well-known Presbyterian pastor and speaker, Earl Palmer, who was down at University Press for a long time. He actually wrote a book that one of these days I'm going to read, which has to do with Romans. And he called it, Righteousness by Surprise. And he titled it after this particular text. Because what Paul is saying is there's this whole group of people who had nothing to do with following the law or even part of the the nation of Israel. And yet, surprise, they stumbled upon righteousness. And yet Israel, who's been seeking and seeking and striving and striving, find themselves on the outside. Not all of them, Paul will say, of course, because he is one of them. I think this is the reason that the altar call has been so effective in the Western church for so long. Anyone else besides me ever gone forward on an altar call? Had that experience? A few? Okay, good. Yeah, I mean, there's different versions of it. I know in the church that I was in when I was a teenager, every Sunday the pastor would end the message by saying something along the lines of, um, you know, if you'd like to accept Jesus into your heart and turn away from your sins, then everybody, you know, close your eyes and raise your hand if you want to. But he didn't want to say it the same way every week, so he always changed it, and it was always a response to what he was preaching. So I just raised my hand every week. I was about probably 12 or 13. I didn't realize until a couple years later that that pastor must have thought I was really messed up. Yeah, he's responding every week. Come on, get with the program. You only need to do it once. Um, and I've been at camps where I actually went forward. for not When they have you get up and go forward and altar call. I think the reason that's been so effective in the church has been that um, we are often surprised by God's righteousness and they're given to us. So we hear the word preached. We hear, feel the spirit move and we want to respond and we're just surprised that we find ourselves sitting there hearing it and God loving and accepting us. It's a beautiful part of the gospel and the way God continues to work in us. I know I personally was at a very low point in my life and in my self-esteem especially, I was um, about 13, when I had a moment that I think is being pivotal in my faith, having grown up in the church, having... This is actually before I started raising my hand every week. But having grown up in the church and really decided that I... At that point, that it was just something I didn't want to have anything to do with. And I remember I was at a, a camp... And I had been listening to people speak about the word. And what happened was not that I was convicted that I was such a sinner, because I already felt that pretty strongly. But it was actually, and I still, and I've shared this before, but I just remember exactly where I was standing. It was on Camp Crestview on the Columbia River, and I was walking down this grassy hill that went down to the chapel, where you could actually see over the roof of the chapel, and behind it you could see trees, and then the Columbia River. And I was walking down there, and I just, almost like Paul, I just about fell over. Because for whatever reason, God's love and acceptance and everything I had heard all those years in Sunday school and heard from my parents and read the scriptures, everything just kind of came flooding back to me. And what happened was I was surprised that I was finding myself in a situation where God was saying, I'm giving you my righteousness, the righteousness that comes from Christ. And that, that feeling of being so completely accepted. And right at a point when I felt so terrible about who I was, um, you know, my body could almost physically not hold me up. It's such a powerful experience. And we see this in the scriptures. We see, I mean, think about those who encountered Jesus. Remember Zacchaeus? <laughs> I love that Sunday school story. The flannel graphs of Zacchaeus were great. If you miss that era, man, we got to get flannel grass for our kids because I tell you, those were fun. Zacchaeus was the shortest little dude, right? And he was up in the tree trying to look over all these tall people to see Jesus. And, and he's a tax collector. And Jesus just calls him down and says, Hey, I want to go eat at your house, Zacchaeus. And so he goes and eats at Zacchaeus' house. And in that moment, Zacchaeus is just surprised by God's righteousness. And what's his response? He says, Jesus, he says, Lord, I think, you know, if I have defrauded anyone, which was common for tax collectors to do at the time, I'm going to repay them back many times over. And he says all these things, and and Jesus says salvation has come upon this house. He's just surprised by by righteousness, by God, acceptance of him, not deserving it. Or what about Peter? When Peter and some of the other disciples get called to follow Jesus, remember they're in the boat and they're fishing. And they've been fishing all night. They haven't caught anything. And then they throw their net. Jesus says, let's go back out. and Throw your net on the other side. And so many fish that the net is ripping. They've never seen anything like it. And Peter's response is what? Jesus, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. And it's that moment that Jesus' righteousness surprises Peter. Not just that Jesus is good. But that Jesus is saying, Peter, I'm going to give you my righteousness. You're going to be good. Peter doesn't fully understand that yet. Because Jesus hasn't gone to the cross. And then what I mean we could go on and on, but the other one that I think of is the sinful woman in Luke seven. She's a woman who's watch she comes in when Jesus is having dinner and as she anoints his feet and she's wiping his dirty feet with her hair and her tears which are falling on his feet. And the, the, all of the, the righteous men sitting around that table say if he was really a prophet, he would know how nasty this woman is that is touching him, which leads many to believe that she may have been involved in prostitution. We don't know that for sure. But something, at least it would have made her unclean. And they're basically saying, what a scandal, he's not much of a prophet, he doesn't get who she is. And then he asks a question to the so-called righteous about the way they have accepted him and shown hospitality to him, which they haven't done. And he's saying, this woman hasn't stopped showing that to me since I came here. And he turns to her and says, your sins are forgiven. But she's doing that because she's already been surprised by God's righteousness and his acceptance of her. So let's talk about righteousness because that word comes up a lot in Paul's writing and over and over in the text we just read. Righteousness is not to be confused with morality. Righteousness is not to be confused with morality. Righteousness... When we see it in the Gospels, and we see the way it's talked about, we see the way Paul talks about it, we see the way others talk about it, righteousness is a gift. Only God has righteousness. See, this is where the um, people of Israel, Paul is saying, messed up. They thought that they could achieve righteousness by obedience to the law. Where they messed up was they didn't understand that righteousness belongs to God alone. And so if a person is to be righteous, it's a gift. So when you go back in your Old Testament and you look at it, and Paul talked about these things all the time, you see someone like Abraham and God declares Abraham righteous. God says Noah is righteous. We don't get any indication in those texts that these great pillars of our faith were such outstanding people. That God said, okay, you've reached righteousness, so I'm going to use you. But God declares it. He says that I will give you righteousness. You will be righteous or you are righteous. See, moral righteousness is something that if it were true, it would have to be earned. It would have to be accomplished by our own striving and doing in obedience to the law and doing everything right and doing everything good. And this is, again, where even in our time, people miss it completely. Because they'll say something like, well, you know, in response to the, the message of the gospel, they'll say something like, well, I feel like I'm a pretty good person. Or you'll hear a lot at, a, at a memorial services, you know, so-and-so was a good person. Please don't say, if any of you are alive at my memorial, Christina, hopefully you'll probably out with me. But don't say Brandon was a good person. I'm not a good person. Okay? <laughs> Only God is good. Right. If I have any goodness in me, it's because of what Jesus has done. And this is where we miss it. Righteousness belongs to God. We can't earn it. We can't get it. Uh, Jim Edwards, who's a professor at Whitworth University for a long time and wrote a great um, commentary on Romans. He says, in this passage, he says, Works of law were not worthless, nor was Israel wrong to pursue them. Both Jews and Christians should pursue works of the law. But the pursuit of morality and the gift of righteousness are two separate matters. Let me say that again. The pursuit of morality and the gift of righteousness are two separate matters. And this Israel confused. The law is righteous, but it cannot give life. So the pursuit of righteousness or what we think sometimes is righteousness, but the pursuit of being good and living moral lives and obedience to God is a very good thing, and Jews and Christians should strive for that. But that should not be confused with the gift of righteousness that only God can give, for only God is righteous. I've often liked to think of righteousness as a right relationship. I used that a lot when I was doing youth ministry to help them Break down that word, and it still helps me a lot. Righteousness as rightness with God. A right relationship with God. A restoration in the relationship with God. But sin prevents us from having that right relationship. That's why we can't earn it or achieve it. Because God is holy, and He cannot stand sin to to be in His presence. So our sin prevents that kind of relationship with our God the Father that we want. So that right relationship, that righteousness, has to have some intervention. And that's where Jesus comes in. That's where everything comes in that we just talked about at Good Friday and Easter. Martin Luther um, described two types of righteousness. And theologians have used this for a long time since. He called the two types of righteousness alien righteousness and proper righteousness. Alien righteousness being not from spacemen, but being foreign or outside of us. That can only be given to us. So it's God's righteousness, so it's alien to us. And it's given to us. And then proper righteousness is the idea that out of that right relationship then with God, we are able to produce fruit in good works. So that's proper righteousness. It still all belongs to God completely. But in response to having our relationship with God made right, we can now be good. We can now live good lives. We can do the right things. And that's also a form of righteousness because it's flowing out of what God has done. Uh, look, if you sell your Bibles open, look at, at verse 931. But Israel, who did strive for the righteousness that was based on the law, did not succeed and fulfilling that law. And then jump to 10.3. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. So what does a works-based righteousness looks like today? Because that's what, if you hear that scripture, that's what Israel was striving after. Paul points out, and he, he knew, He came from this. Paul points out that they were trying to create a righteousness of their own. Did you hear that in that scripture? Not that righteousness that comes from God. So it's a works-based righteousness. If I'm moral enough, if I'm good enough, I can earn God's love. Or I can prove that I deserve God's love. That I'm not really as bad as everybody else. And so this kind of righteousness, a works-based righteousness, it, it ends with an overemphasis on ourself and on being good. Now, I, I sometimes give warnings before I say things that really offend people. So be forewarned and feel free to disagree with me. But you know one of the places I feel like I see this? I see this in the consumer Christian culture that we see today. Everything from bumper stickers to Bible covers to picture hangings to, you know, just this whole Christian music, Christian books, Christian movies, Christian t-shirts, Christian concerts, the whole thing. Not Again, I'm not saying they're all bad, but what, I, what I'm saying is that in that whole culture, what I've noticed, because I've grown up in that, what I've noticed is it seems like there's an overemphasis on my own personal goodness or morality and my own personal need to show everyone else that I'm part of this club. Or to say, you know, I can buy anything with the Christian label, and that's good, and I can label everything else bad. So I was a child growing up in the 80s. And man, I tell you, this was a big deal when I was a teenager. The Christian music versus the secular music. You know, ACDC versus Petra. I mean, it was a big deal. One was from hell, one was from heaven. Right, and it wasn't until I got a little bit older that I realized some of the some of the Christian bands. If you actually look at the theology, it was probably messing me up more than if I'd to listen to ACDC. But you know, that's a whole nother thing. But it's just it's just this emphasis um, works righteousness is all an emphasis on yourself and on you. Um, I think that we can also see this in overly programmed churches. And again, this is, this is hard for me to say, but let me explain. I think that churches can create a culture where we spend all of our free time on spiritual self-development. You know, so we do a lot of Bible studies. We do women's groups. We do men's groups. We do youth ministry. We do potlucks. We do, you know, and you can just go on and on and on. And, uh, if, and again, not say, all oh, this is bad, okay? I'm not saying that. All well, I'm saying is that I think this can be a symptom of a problem where we're not even allowing ourselves any time to live a righteous life because we're still focused on trying to get ourselves righteous. But Jesus already did that. So why are we focusing all of our time and energy on that? When Jesus says, follow me, you know, the disciples go and follow him. They figure that out on the way. Jesus shows them on the way, right? Even service projects, I mean, even our service Sunday, you know, we can fall into the danger of doing service as a form of false righteousness to make ourselves feel good instead of just simply having a desire and a, a care for others and loving others. And, and by the way, doing this, the church has often made a lot of mistakes. They've done a lot of so-called service that made themselves feel really good. Short-term missions is, uh, you know, case number one. Um, and have actually caused more damage. So there's a book that I know some of us at Mountain View or involved in missions read calling um, When Helping Hurts, right? Or yeah, when when Helping Hurts. And it just talks about that idea that sometimes you know, we're doing something and when we really get down to it, what we're doing is trying to make ourselves feel like we're doing something good, but we're not even really listening or taking the time to understand what others need. So even service projects can be done for the wrong reasons and end up becoming a form of works Righteousness. The better way, the way I believe that the gospel is pointing us towards, is learning to live by faith in the life that we have, in the life that God has given us, with the people that we know. This is one of our, our emphases that we're trying to figure out how to do, it's hard, with Tidelins, is to say, we believe God has placed every one of you in some very unique relationships. If we ask to for all of you to come in and do everything for Tidelands to make a big program-driven church, we know that what's gonna be sacrificed are those relationships. And if we actually believe God has put you in those relationships for a reason. So we're trying to figure out how we can better equip you and for you to do that. I was convicted of this even last week. I mean, Monica came and did an awesome job on the piano, or on the keyboard, and it was wonderful to have her here, but we had to spend some extra time. She spent a lot of extra time working on that hymn that we did, because that pastor requested it, <laughs> to be organ-driven, you know? And um, and one of the comments she just made offhand was that they weren't able to get together with the missional community, because with everything else, and try to get ready for the Easter service. And I thought, oh, that's what I don't want to hear. I mean, don't get me wrong, once a year, that's fine. We'll go for that. But, but we could be doing that every week, if we wanted. And then people would be spending all their time doing that. Um, Look, this isn't a black and white area. I understand that. But I'm just saying, do you see the symptoms of how this can even creep into things that we think are sometimes very good? So what does faith-based righteousness look like then? That's what we're after. That's what Paul talks about. He says, you know, Israel got it wrong because they were striving for righteousness based on works. But the Gentiles just were surprised by it. They stumbled into it. They found righteousness through Jesus. It was given to them. And they didn't strive after it. What's faith-based righteousness look like in our world today? One of the when we talk about the four G's, one of them comes right to mind here, and that's saying if we start with God and we understand God is gracious, the second half of that is that's true that we don't have to prove ourselves. So start using that filter. Am I doing this to prove myself to God? Am I doing this to prove myself to my church, to my pastor, to my spouse, to my kids? You know, because if we're doing it for that reason, then we're not believing fully that God is gracious. And that he has given us grace and he's declared us righteous. And that we can't do anything to have him love us more. Or give us more. Notice that the emphasis then becomes on God and not ourselves. And a faith-based righteousness. And a desire to follow the will of God will uh, begin to be because your heart is aligning with God's heart. Not because you're trying to prove yourself. So better... Prayers to ask and to say, I think to help us move into faith-based righteousness would be things like um, the one John Mason, pastor of Mountain View said, probably still says a lot, um, is when you go somewhere, just say, you know, recognize that God is there and say, God, what are you doing here and how can I be a part of it? You know, so you're asking for your heart to be aligned with what God is doing, where you are, instead of where you will someday be. Or um, another one that I've loved to pray is something similar to, God, give me your heart for people. Or break my heart for what breaks yours, God. Those kind of prayers. And there's something very similar, and I don't remember the exact words that Mother Teresa had written on her wall of her small room. That had something to do with just asking God to give her God's heart for the world around her. And it was a prayer that she obviously prayed a lot. So I think that's closer to faith-based righteousness. Faith-based righteousness will also result in a willingness to follow Jesus in service without any reward. I have to tell you, I found myself convicted by this a little bit this week, because many of you know the story of the whole backpack program that we got started at the elementary school, El Bay, a few years ago. That really started out of our service in the school and the whole thing. Well, there was a, an article that came out in the Stanwood Commander News this week about uh, a Class, a club up to the high school that was putting together a food pantry, and they talked about the backpack program. And there was two churches. They said, "We think the programs in every school in the community." And there was two churches' named that were participating in it, and neither was us. And there was a part of me that right away thought, "Man, I need to write to them and tell them. you know." I mean, it's just that sort of like that. You know, I want recognition for something, right? But a faith-based righteousness should look like a willingness to serve and hand things off. And let them be God's and not be ours. Not let them come back to us. Um, I serve in Little League. Something I've done as I've entered this community. I was convicted one time. Someone said uh, when I was doing actually getting prepared to start a church. And I went through an assessment. And somebody said, look, we, one of the things we've noticed is that you love athletics and sports. It's been a big part of your life. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. What are you doing in the community in that way right now? Well, I'm not. Well, why not? Because I've got a full-time job as a youth pastor. I don't have any time to do that. And I've got kids. And they said, you know, we really think you need to listen to God's heart on this. So one of the things I did when I moved here is um, I started looking for those natural connections. Hey, my kids want to play sports? Why not be the one who serves and gets involved? We have 450 kids in Little League in this community. And out of those, we only have a handful of adults who are willing to step up and serve. I mean, volunteering for a board is a lot of work and pain. Jeff does that for the soccer board. I mean, gosh, the stuff you have to deal with, is not fun, um, it's, and, but people just aren't willing to do it. But as Christians, I think that's, I mean, there's out of all those parents, there's got to be more Christian parents, but we can't get people to even rank a field after a baseball game. I mean, really, it is, it is almost crisis level. Leagues have almost collapsed in the communities around us. This league almost collapsed this year. Little League in this town. Because we had to we elect our board members and we didn't even have half the number of adults willing to serve that we needed to elect. And so it's, it's one of those things where you, know, you look at it and you go, there's something wrong here. There's something broken. But as Christians, we should be the first ones to say, I'm willing to serve. I don't care if it's just raking the baseball field and nobody will pay attention. If I'm the last one there... And I've got to lock up the box. Um, Eugene Peterson, the pastor who wrote the message, he's one of my favorite uh, prophetic, I think, writers and speakers and teachers. Um, very humble man. Doesn't even like speaking outside of his own church community. And one of the things he said was after he, he started a Presbyterian Church years ago. And he said when he left that church... It was actually his last day, and so you can imagine the angst of that. You know, I mean, he had started the church; been there for a long time. The last thing he did is he was turning off the lights. Was he went into the bathroom? Leah, you laughed at this because you've had days like this too. Went in the bathroom, turned off the lights, and the bathroom was a mess. And he actually ended up cleaning the bathroom as his last act as pastor of this church. And he was first, he said he was caught kind himself of being really upset about it, and then he realized just how appropriate that was. That actually was his calling to follow Jesus in service. I think we should all have that kind of an attitude. Um, Verses 9 and 10 that we didn't talk a lot about. I want to end there. This is actually one of, we think, the oldest Christian creeds. We think this may have been used in worship. We're not for sure. The earlier one would be simply Jesus is Lord. But then this one says, If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For if one believes in their, uh, for one believes with their heart, so is justified. One confesses with their mouth, and so is saved. One of the things I like about this and many other places in scripture is you see the connection between confession and belief. You know, they they need to go together. Um, The same professor I mentioned earlier, he says, belief without confession is betrayal, Confession without belief is hypocrisy. Belief without confession is betrayal. Confession without belief is hypocrisy. So do you believe in Jesus? And then we confess, yes, I believe in Jesus. I'll sing my songs, I'll say my creeds. Well, if so, then your life will show it. Your life will show it. That's how we show belief. It's something that's lived out, not just something that's said from the lips. Confession and belief. You'll show it because you've been made righteous, not because you're trying to be righteous. It's part of your identity. The first is really beautiful when we we show our righteousness because we're living out our beliefs. The second one is really pretty ugly when we're trying to prove ourselves righteousness through what we do. We actually see examples of this in the Bible too. Think about Paul when he was standing there, when Stephen was being stoned, he was trying to show his righteousness. Stephen was, you know, betraying everything he believed in, he thought, right? And so he would stand there and allow others to stone Stephen and approve of it. Or think of other things in church history. Church splits, you know, the Spanish Inquisition, the colonialism practices. I mean, we could go on and on, right? Those are examples of When Christians are trying to show their righteousness, to earn their righteousness, to make others righteous, the most beautiful things in our tradition, our faith, have been when people begin to believe and live out their righteousness, not because they're trying to earn it or deserve it, but because it's who they are. Because it's an identity that God has gifted upon them. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that we would live into this Righteousness that you have given us. Father forgive us. For the times when. We have pointed the fingers at others. Or have been so hard on ourselves. Or whatever. It is. When we're trying to prove ourselves. God that's not who we are. So father. As your church. I pray that we will be faithful. In following you. That we would strive to live out. All that we believe. Including a good moral life that you've shown us. God, help us to start always from the place of acceptance and love that you have given to us through Jesus we did not deserve. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.